last night. I do want to remind you that uh, we have a couple of handbooks left back there, I see, and a few bulletins, and most of you are aware of our, uh, our uh, display back there, and if you're not familiar with us, there may be some new ones here this morning. If you can grab a handbook, if you want to know what the Brian Bible Institute, we have some, a couple of handbooks look like back there left, and uh, that gives an explanation of our program. Uh, you can read through that, and if you have questions, then you can contact me if you want to know more about the school and what we're doing. And it's a ministry, uh, it's a Bible teaching and training ministry is all it is. We don't have uh, people that want to be school teachers and pre-med and things like that. We don't have any of that kind of courses. It's all Bible and ministry and how to put the Bible to, into action in your, li- in your life and helping others also. I would like to say something about that. We don't produce super preachers or ultra-mature believers all of a sudden. All we do is equip people to better serve the Lord. That's all we can do. And that's what really ministry is about, edifying and building up of each other as we all progress, we all grow. Uh, One thing I've learned over the years I've been in the ministry and the years that I've been a Christian, the first and most important person that I have to carry the word of God to is me. First, I need to respond to it in a proper way, not to just learn the Bible so I can teach others or I can... I can show them how much I know or, uh, and that kind of thing. But first, I have to respond to it myself. And that is for all of us, is the idea of learning the Bible is not just to know the Bible, but to know what know God, to know him better. And uh, that tells us the riches of the knowledge of him, we're told in Colossians. There's, there's real riches known in that, coming to know him. So, so that's important to know. That that's what we're doing is trying to help individual believers become equipped that they can be the most effective servants of God that they can be. And ministry is meeting needs, is what it is. That's what ministry is. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did, didn't he? When he came to earth, he came to meet the greatest need, one we couldn't meet for ourselves to provide salvation for us. And my Bible tells me that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not to coddle the saints. And sometimes we get the idea once we're saved, we can sit back, you know, we can just rest in what we have. And we can. He's given us that prerogative. But at the same time, there's a lot of work to do, isn't there? Getting the message out. We have a precious deposit. And uh, reading through First and Second Timothy, that uh, Timothy was charged with something. And we're charged with the same thing. When we come to know and understand the Word of God, right, rightly divided, and know Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, we have a responsibility. Paul says, you know, um, even if he didn't have a responsibility, he'd preach anyway. And because it, it, con- it just controlled him so much of what Christ had done for him. And I think we should, we should understand that we come, come from placing as believers, and we don't want to do that. We should be excited for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done and make that wonderful message known to a lost world. Also, I'll get to preaching on the wrong message there, because that's a <laughs> message dear and dear, dear to my heart, is what we're doing with the Bible and with our Bible knowledge and how we apply it to our own heart and uh, how we apply it to our life. If you want to, would like to get the BBI bulletin, again, I want to remind you that you know we'll be picking that up after uh, lunch and uh, maybe lunch or display. If you want to get your name on there and get the, the bulletin, we'll send that to you gladly, free of charge. 
no obligations whatsoever, and we won't share your name with any mailing list. And um, if you'd like to get that, sign our uh, sign-up sheet back there and print your name clearly so we can read it. And we got the right zip code and the right street number and things, and we'll be glad to send it to you. Uh, it comes out quarterly, every three months. So that's back there too. Also, if, I don't know, most of you are probably familiar with the searchlight, and there may be some that don't get it. Uh, that aren't receiving this. The Brian Bible Society, you know, Brian Bible Institute and Brian Bible Society are separate separate ministries. Uh, even though we're in the same building, we are separate, totally separate, separate boards, and we're an independent ministry. But the Brian Bible Society would be glad to send you the Brian Searchlight if you're not getting it. If you'd like to be on their mailing list, um, well, you can use our sign-up sheet and make sure you put searchlight on it. We'd be glad to share that, to take that back and, and give that to the Brian Bible Society, and they'd be glad to put your name on their mailing list also. There's no charge for this. It comes out 11 months a year. It's uh, got good Bible study material in it. It's got uh, other information. Uh, tells about the different conferences and diff you know around the country and news and announcements. and It's uh, just a good magazine. I suggest if you're not getting it, you need to be. So um, that's there too, and we'd be glad to uh, take your name back and give that to them. Okay, let's open our Bibles this morning, and I want to try to bring all of this together that I've been, I've been talking about. I've been laying a groundwork, and um, some of it, um, I think, well, boy, it went long last night. <laughs> And it's hard to, to get it down into a compact package because there's so much in the Old Testament. It's a big book. Mm -hmm. And there's so many connections. That's one of the things, I remember one of our students, uh, after going through the Old Testament, came and said, wow, all these things are connected. So many things that the Apostle Paul, you ever notice how much the Apostle Paul uses the Old Testament? Quotes it a lot. Uh, or alludes to it a lot, or paraphrases it sometimes. You know, he wasn't afraid to paraphrase either. And a lot of, so most of the time, though, he's using it as a principle. He would show that the principle was still there, that uh, grace by faith was principle that's always been there. You know, uh, even though Israel was under the law and they had requirements that they had to keep the works, as a matter of fact, Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats could not save anyone. So even though they were required to do that, let's think about Moses. In Moses' day, he'd come out of Egypt, they were Mount Sinai, and he'd received the law, and he comes down and says, you know, we've got to start offering sacrifices. And that meant daily sacrifices after the tabernacle was built, morning and evening, morning and evening, as well as the free will sacrifices and the trespass sacrifices and the, the sacrifices that were given on the special high days. Every day, morning and evening, seven days a week. There was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. It's also known as the times of prayer. And you know, what if one of these uh, Hebrews had come and said, Moses, you know, I think that's all well and fine. But you know, I think God's gracious, so I don't have to offer those sacrifices. Well, that wasn't what God told him to do. And Paul hadn't come along yet, and the Lord hadn't given him the message of grace. They were required to do those. But the sacrifices themselves could not save anyone. No one can keep the law, so the law couldn't save anyone. Matter of fact, Paul explains that. The law was good and holy and just. Nothing wrong with the law. The trouble is, 
man is not good, man is unholy, and man is unjust. And the law proved it. You know, those poor Jews, the Israelites, because they really weren't called Jews until uh, much later, until the time of, after the time of David and after the kingdom had broke, broken apart, they could be in big trouble, couldn't they? Because they knew, and yet Paul said, I was blameless according to the law. As a Pharisee, tells us that in uh, uh, Philippians. What did he mean? Because he had kept the law, and they had trespass offerings. When they blew it, they went to the Lord and, and uh, brought those trespass offerings when they were brought to their attention. And um, so they did that. But still, the law, the keeping of the law, was never meant to save anyone. God always knew that he was going to send his son. And that was the efficiency. In the kingdom to come, in the, in the tribulation period, there's going to be some requirements. Things are going to change. I'm of the, of the opinion that probably after the rapture of the church, there's going to be a lot of people preaching the grace message. Man seems to be a dispensation behind all the time. But that's not going to be what the message is for that day. It's going to be persevere to the end. And uh, so those kind of things... Uh, matter of fact, if you've seen some of the movies, uh, read some of the books uh, about things that happen after the rapture, they always try to, they seem to always try to put in the grace gospel for the people after the, that are here after the rapture. If you, you see that, you know, that, that's what they do. And there's going to be a difference. It's still Christ. It's still facing Christ. But we're talking about Israel's fullness today. Let's look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Um, the Apostle Paul, now my understanding of the, the book of Romans, it's very foundational. I don't put much credence into when Paul wrote his letters and how we understand them. Matter of fact, I think that's a dangerous thing to say, well, you know, this was an earlier letter, so Paul didn't know this or Paul didn't know that. Paul did receive revelation progressively. We know that from Scripture. But I'm going to tell you something starting to say, well, this is when Paul wrote this letter, so this must be the case. This was it. You've probably heard that this is one of Paul's earlier letters, so that's, this isn't for us, or that's not for us. Unless the scripture tells us that, don't you believe it? You understand what I'm saying? It's subjective to say, well, you know, when Paul wrote Thessalonians, that was one of his early letters, so there's things he didn't understand yet. Yeah, but the Holy Spirit did, and the Holy Spirit's the author. He got his revelation from Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit was a superintendent. That man was inspired of God to write what he wrote, and he wrote inspired words. And you can't separate those two. God knew what he wanted. And you know, he put Paul's name at the first of those letters and, this and gave Paul a message, and I think that we're on dangerous ground. I go right back to where I was before I knew the, the grace message. I started saying, well, you know, I can figure out this isn't for us, and this over here is for us, and, and I start weeding it out because that's how I tried to understand the Gospels. I tell you, you know, this is for the Jews, and this is for the church. And there's some people that, that probably can relate to what I'm saying, that uh, uh, that's the way I was taught. You know, the, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, how Mark starts out, and they said, well, this is, you know, this was the gospel. It was just the preparation for, the, for Pentecost when the grace of God would be offered. Those who read through Matthew, they'd find things, well, you know, this had to be just for the Jews, and that's pro prophetic. But this is, no, Matthew is prophetic <laughs> in a lot of the things that are there. I mean, it's history, but it's also a lot of prophecy in there. So that's what I'm, what I'm uh, 
getting off on one of my hobby horses, I guess, because I think it's very important to understand that unless we have a clear indication, like in 1 Corinthians 13, when he tells that certain those sign gifts are going to be gone, that we be careful that we don't decide, well, you know what? Paul probably didn't know this, so this or this was early in his letters, so Paul was doing something different, and, and that's not for us. There's some that divide Paul's letters to such an extreme that uh, they only accept Ephesians and Colossians for today. I don't know if you know that or not, but it's true. They do that. It's, they're wrong. I believe that Romans through Philemon are for us. It says Paul on them. I don't have to guess who wrote it. I can know who wrote them. So Romans chapter 9, I believe, explains what God, why God set Israel aside. You see, if you had Paul letters and you understood the Bible up until the time of the early Acts and then without the book of early Acts, chapter 7 just quit there and we didn't have any more of the book of Acts. And, the next thing you find is Romans, and you'd say, what in the world is Paul doing here? Where did he come from? You'd also ask a question, what happened to the kingdom that God promised? That's why so many people try to say the kingdom is now, that we're in the kingdom today. And as Pastor Castlander pointed out, there's, there's different ways to understand the word kingdom. And I, and I'm, uh, I agree with what he, what he said, that we have to look at the context of what kingdom is, is in view. But they saw a kingdom that was promised, that believers would be in. And then they assumed that all believers are the same all through the scripture. And they said, well, we must be in the kingdom because it didn't come. Christ didn't come back and set up a kingdom. So they have to do something with it. So they say, we're in that kingdom. And Christ is ruling today in the hearts of those who follow him. Well, that is not the kingdom that he was talking about. And since it's a truth that we are translated into the kingdom of his dear son and he should be ruling our life and we might be rebellious children and hopefully not but we're all in some areas we're still struggling because we're never going to come to a place of perfect sanctification in this life our positional sanctification you're not going to reach that in this life because you have to be exactly like jesus christ you have to reach sinless perfection to do that because that's what we're going to be in eternity we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, not only physically in the resurrection, but also our character and our spirit. There is a positional sanctification and a practical sanctification. And sometimes when we start struggling with some of those issues, we say, instead of saying amen, we say, oh me. Because, you know, <laughs> come along and, who's, you know, there, there are people that teach a doctrine. Of, you can come to a place of, sinless perfection in this life. And the person that comes and says, you know, I've reached that, the problem is now they've come to a place of pride and the Lord's going to have to deal with that because that's sin too. No, that, that, it's not going to happen in this life. We have the flesh to deal with. We have an old nature. And I know there's some that don't believe we have an old nature. You're saved and that you do. If you didn't, you know, Paul's letters, half, half of his letters deal with what we shouldn't do. And what, you know, what we should do and deal with sanctification? It does. How many places in there? He says, put off the old man. He tells you what it is. Put it off. He says, put on the new man. He tells you what it is. He takes something away and replaces it. It doesn't happen automatically. Maybe that's not been your experience. That's been my experience anyway. And uh, maybe your experience was the day you were saved, you never had another problem with sin. 
<laughs> no, God's still dealing with us, isn't he? And he dealt with Israel. In chapter 9, and there's some overlapping on these chapters, I believe, but in chapter 9 of Romans, well, let me go back. Chapter, chapters, you know, we have the introduction, the first part of Romans, then chapter 118 through 320, Paul explains man's basic problem, sin. He's lost. Everybody's guilty before God. And then from 321 through chapter 425, he explains how to be saved, how to do about it. If a person reads those four chapters and understand what they say and believe it, understand that it spoke to them and believe it, they become a saved person. And I think we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most marvelous statement in the scripture. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 5, verse 1, through the end of uh, Romans, except for the 9, 10, and 11, where he deals with Israel, Israel uh, 9, 10, and 11 are kind of parentheses set in there, but then you go to, okay, let's go to chapter 5 through the end of chapter 8. He talks about what we have in Christ and lays down the basis for understanding our position in Christ and how we're to live for him, how to be a living sacrifice in chapter 12, verse 1. And it, but he gets the chapter, into chapter 8, and he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he got, has gone through all these things. The question for the Jew would be, this is all well and fine, Paul, but what happened to the nation of Israel? What did God do with them? Didn't he make some promises to them? Weren't there some promises to Israel then be a great nation, then be a witness and a testimony to the Gentiles that they were going to be in the kingdom? And Paul says, yeah. The promises were given to them. In chapter 9 he says that, but he explains why God set them aside and why he was just in doing so. In chapter 10 the question comes up, how is a Jew saved today? And Paul says, yeah, there's still a remnant of Jews saved today. He says, I'm one. I was, God saved me. And he explains in Romans 10 that there's no difference between Jew and Gentile today in the dispensation of grace. And I want to make it very clear that a Jew that's saved today goes into the body of Christ. They don't go into the kingdom. Um, well, God's still dealing with Israel and the, and the fact of preservation. They're just dealt like everybody else. They're, they're lost sinners. And, you know, something we look at them, and they're very hard to witness to, aren't they? But, you know, he tells us in those chapters that one of the things that God's doing is trying to make them jealous by saving Gentiles on the same plane, part of it. They're hard-hearted, they're still stiff-necked. But you know what? I've met a couple of Gentiles that are hard-hearted and stiff-necked too. Before we point our fingers at the Jews, we need to look around and see why the Jews, why God chose Abraham to make them a special nation in the first place. Because the whole world was like that. And he points out in Romans uh, chapter 3, the Jews and Gentiles are alike. There's no difference between them. But then in chapter 11, and let's look at chapter 11. I wish we had time to look at the whole thing, but in uh, chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, talking about the Jews, but rather through their fall, salvation is coming to the Gentiles, provoke them to jealousy. 
God wants Jews to be saved, just like he always did. He wants everybody to be saved. It's God's desire that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? How much more their fullness? What is the fullness of Israel? Let's go to chapter, uh, same chapter, verses 25. I'm going to jump over a lot of the things there that are very important, and, and, but uh, we'll leave that for another time because I want to look at Israel's hope and their fullness and what they're going to become. Verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, Least you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part has happened to Israel till the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant to them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. And as for touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. For as ye, for as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. But verse twenty nine, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God's gifts, promises to Israel will be full. And that's when the fullness of Israel will come in. He's making some special promises to us, that to the Gentile nations today, that he never, to the Gentiles in general, not as nations, but as individuals that he never made before. But here he says that will be fulfilled. He is not slack that he cannot fulfill his promises. He will fulfill those promises to Israel. As a matter of fact, Second Peter deals with that. Why is God slack? What has he been doing? Uh, he will fulfill these promises. And you know, there's a time coming up on this earth, and part of this, that Jacob is going to be refined. Israel will be refined as the fuller's soap he talks about. And I don't know, anybody here ever made lye soap? <laughs> My mom used to do that when I was a boy. And you know, you have to boil that stuff and get it down, make it in the cakes and things. They also, something else, silver and gold is used in the Bible too, isn't it? As, uh, boy, that lye soap, that'll get you clean. You don't have any skin left to worry about when you don't use enough of it. Uh, uh, but also is, is silver. Now, I've never had enough silver or gold that I had a pot of it to melt, but I used to do reloading and I uh, melted a lot of lead basically works the same way. You melt it, you get it hot, and put it in a pot, and when it melts in the dross of the impurities all float to the top of it, and you can skim it off. You don't get it too hot. You'll actually burn it. It'll get too hot. Then when you mold bullets or fishing weights or whatever you might make with it, uh, you can mold it in different things. Um, it will have a crinkly appearance when it's done. It won't be smooth. If you don't get it uh, hot enough, it, uh, you take a ladle, you actually have a cast iron ladle, you need to leave it in and get it hot. Depending, it won't pour properly. You'll get a, at the top of the, of the mold, you'll get him, uh, it'll be wrinkled and different kind. But you get it just right, it'll just fill the mold up and when you take that out of there, it'll be nice and shiny and smooth. You gotta get to the right temperature. And silver and gold work kind of the same way. And also, on silver, I understand 
that it becomes like a mirror on top when it gets to the right temperature. You get the dross off and you look in it and you actually see your reflection. It says Israel is going to be purified. And there's a time coming we call the tribulation period. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. What uh, the Lord calls it here. Jeremiah chapter 30. Um, And as I spoke, we have to understand the captivity is although the captivity, Babylonian captivity was over, the dispersion is still going on. As a matter of fact, James wrote to the 12 tribes that were where? Scattered abroad. Peter wrote to the dispersion. Just one of these letters to them in that way. The Jews, why, you know, you know why Pentecost was such a big deal? Why uh, Passover was such a big deal? So many people were there in Jerusalem. People... Jews came from all over the world at Pentecost. And uh, one of the things that was going on there, they were, they were speaking in tongues. So all these Jews that were raised in other parts of the world and lived there all their lives, they were, they were the descendants of those who had been taken away in, in the cap, different captivities in the different times. And they had been dispersed. And you know, they were as far as Rome and clear over into Babylon and that area. And they spoke in tongues on Pentecost and at other times during that. So everybody heard in their own language. I'll stop and think about it. What caused the dispersion of nations? Language is being confused, wasn't it? We see the reverse at Pentecost of bringing back together of people. Now that was Israel. But we also know that uh, tongues were from believers as well. That was for Israel at that time. But I believe if, if uh, the, the program had not been interrupted with the dispensation of grace and that would have continued on, we would see that happening as the nation at the end of the tribulation with Christ coming back that you're going to see the nations all speaking one language again. God dispersed them at that time to keep them from building their idols and building their, their false religion and coming together as one people and doing that. And there's something very interesting in the book of Romans. I'm getting sidetracked, but uh, we're in Jeremiah. Keep your finger here, but go to Romans chapter 1 to keep people coming together. And... Uh, um, just turning away from God and the way they were, and he dispersed them, and he's used human government since that time. He used nation to judge nation. He only lets a nation go so far, and he judges them, brings them down. Another nation rises up, and man thinks he's so great and wonderful. Verse 21, I'm going to start at verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world. That's from the very beginning of creation in mankind. I want to I point that out. It's not from some time way before that. But from the creation of the world, from the time the world was created, are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even in eternal power and Godhead, that they are without excuse, that mankind is without excuse. 
because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as... This goes back before the Tower of Babel. That's from creation. The things that went on after the Tower of Babel went on before also. Man hasn't changed. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I want to notice something. That heart singular. In Adam, we all have the same heart. He talks later about their hearts, individuals, and their responsibility before God. But there he's talking about collective humanity. Praise God, in Christ we're one. But you know, in Adam, the world is one. And we were all saved out of that. If you're saved today, you were saved out of that. From the Adam kind to the Christ kind. That's what I like to call them. That's what mankind is, the Adam kind. Boy, in Romans chapter, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's a wonderful chapter in the resurrection. And he talks about being in Adam, being now being in Christ. Just something to think about. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 30. Verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write all these words that I have spoken unto thee in a book. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah. So it wasn't just the Judah. And Judah was getting ready to go into captivity. And maybe part of them had been by this time. But they were getting ready. But Israel had been almost uh, over 100 years earlier had gone into captivity. And he's saying, My people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land which I gave to the fathers, and they shall possess it. So they will, I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they will possess it. The same land that Joshua led them into. When they, when they possess that land, they will come back to that. And these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now and see whether a man does travel with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Now we can read the Gospels, and it talks about as a, a woman giving birth, there's going to be uh, pangs, a birth pain coming upon Israel. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ talked about that. And I think it's in Matthew 24, in one place we find that. But he, he talks about, he says, he says, it'll be like men. Uh, when they start, they start suffering labor pain. They don't even know what that's like. They can't understand it. He said, but it's going to be a time that they're going to be. Um, but the thing, the idea of labor pains is there's pain and, and, and hurt during that, but then there's joy afterwards. But he says, this time it's going to be great travail. See, a man with his hands on his loins as a woman in travail. Alas, for the day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. We're talking about the tribulation period here. Israel was set aside. They were, they were put into captivity. They, they were released to bring, rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem. And there was a purpose in that because the temple had to be there. Jerusalem had to be there for the Messiah to come and for the kingdom to be offered. But that doesn't mean everybody was back in the land. They weren't. Verse 8, For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from thy neck and will burst thy bonds, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. 
That hasn't happened since the days of Jeremiah. I'm telling you what, you can't find any time in history that that's happened for Israel. Therefore fear not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, and everybody dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. I do not know of any time in history when Israel, since this time, that Israel has been living in that land and has not been afraid. Not that way today. I'm sure there's a lot of people that don't get a good night's sleep over there. I, uh, people are still marrying, giving and married, things like that going on over there, but they, they've got travail over there. Verse 11, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee. Yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Revelation chapter 20, it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ uh, when he comes back. And let's turn to that quickly. Um, 20 verses 4 through 6. And this is after the, the tribulation period. There's going to be a great tribulation period. And we want to talk about that tribulation period. Verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of men that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. At the end of this great tribulation period that's coming, they will be saved out of it. And, uh, you know, there's coming a time upon this earth and we look at things and if a person had been living in Europe, I think I mentioned this the other night, been Euro living in Europe in the 19, early 1940s, they'd have thought, man, it can't ever get any worse than this. And, I mean, there were some cities... Uh, uh, Germany made an effort to bomb London into oblivion, and we turned around, and we got air power. We bombed a lot of Germany into oblivion, uh, went back, did a lot of rebuilding over there, but there were parts of, of Europe that were just, I mean, they were flat. There were a lot of people killed. Um, even, you know, we, we talk about the, the, six, uh, the six million Jews that um, Hitler put to death, but about 20 million people died in Europe during that whole war, not counting what happened in the Soviet Union. During the reigns which goes before and after World War II, the reigns of Lenin and Stalin, 50 million people were put to death. I don't know why history ignores that. That was a tremendous more than all the people that died in World War II by the communist regime. That was, that's kind of ignored in our history books. Man's evil. But there is nothing ever happened on this earth yet that's going to compare what's going to happen during the tribulation period. 
And there's a lot of things about that, you know, that uh, we don't understand. A lot of things we do understand and a lot of strange ideas about it. And especially there are believers going to go through the tribulation, but they're not going to be grace believers. It's not going to be the body of Christ. And that's where the people get confused. They look at Matthew 24 and say, well, look here, there's believers here. And God's going to send these angels together. They'll laugh together. Well, sure. There's going to become, people become believers. I, I, I think at the time of the rapture, there's going to be a very short period where there are no believers in this earth. But there's going to be people that look at the uh, uh, scriptures and say, wow, Christ was the Messiah, and this thing was prophecy, and he's coming. And I think the first part of the tribulation, you're going to have a remnant of Israel that are believers. But in the middle of the tribulation period, when Antichrist is going to put his idol in the temple, and everybody has to take the mark of the beast, if they don't take the mark of the beast, they can't buy or sell, at that time, when he puts an idol in the temple, what, what I believe is going to happen during the first half of the tribulation period, there is going to be persecution of the church. There's going to be all kinds of wars and rumors of wars. But there will be a remnant of believing Jews. And there will be some Gentiles that they reach. And it will be Gentiles. Have, Gentiles will have to come through them. And they're going to be preaching and teaching the, go the kingdom gospel. But the majority of Jews are going to reject them, are going to follow the Antichrist. And they think when he signs that seven-year treaty that he's signing the new covenant. That's what they think. But when he puts an idol in the temple that you read about in Revelation chapter 13, what's a good Bible-believing Jew going to say when he's, when he's told to bow down to an idol? Whoa, wait a minute. We've been deceived. They're going to know it. And that's when the tribulation is going to intensify and it's going to become a greater time. My understanding of what the scripture teaches when you take and put, try, try to put it all together, it's kind of hard to get, to get, get some of these together, but at least three-fourths of the population of the earth, of the population that is alive at the beginning of the tribulation will die during those seven years. There are certain times it says there are certain periods when the certain judgments of Revelation, a third will be wiped out. And only two thirds. Then a third will be wiped out. I mean, it just keeps going down. I think when it comes down to it, it's about three-fourths of the population is going to die. We don't understand how bad it's going to be. And yet, people will still, it's not going to happen in one place all at one time. It'll be here and here and here and here and over in different parts of the world, but it's going to be get worse and worse and worse until the very end. You know, it was interesting to me during the Bosnia thing, my wife and I, and there was a lot of the fighting going on in Bosnia, and uh, my wife and I were in Kenya at the time. Some of us, we get the newspaper there, and they, uh, we didn't have any TV, but the newspaper and trying to keep up with that. And there was a picture one day. There was one street there, and I can't, I can't think of the name of the town, but where they had a lot of trouble and snipers shooting everybody. And there was this this street there, and these buildings were all marked where they had bullet holes in them and things, and they've been shot. And there's tanks sitting back there and soldiers all around. And this picture of a wedding procession going right down the street. Her white skirt. Uh, the white, her white dress and a long train and her bridesmaids and, and these uh, men in tuxedos. And I thought, man. And that's what it says in Matthew 24. They'll be giving, marry, marrying and giving in marriage. 
You see, man is, has an idea he can make things better somehow, and life will just go on, but at the same time, it won't be normal. And you know, in World War II, things like that went on in Europe also. It's, it's interesting, but it's going to be a time that we cannot conceive of. In verse 11, uh, no, I, I read verse 11, chapter 30, Jeremiah. Um, we see that great tribulation period. Now, the day of Pentecost is very important to this, very important to the gospel message of the kingdom. Um, I don't know if I want to deal with this as an unpardonable sin. Well, I will. What I think the unpardonable sin is, and I think we can find it, we find it in Jeremiah, we find it in Ezekiel, we find it in Micah. I don't think it's personal. I think it's national. And we have the sin unto death. Moses was condemned to death. God said, you go up the mountain. I'm going to take you, take you home. Aaron, the same thing happened to him. And Miriam, they, none of the three were allowed into the promised land because of their, their rebellion. Miriam, when she tried to usurp Moses' rebellion, Aaron, along with Moses, when they, he struck the rock, Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 7. We're in Jeremiah. Something to think about anyway. But I have an opinion on this. and um, yeah, You know what? Opinions are like armpits. Everybody's got a couple of them. Most of them stink. <laughs> but... Uh, we have to we draw some conclusions. Some are better than others. But anyway, in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16, and it's Jeremiah is calling Israel to repentance and, and, uh, and the Lord's pronouncing judgment on them. Boy, where do, where do I start? Uh, verse 14, Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, that's the temple, Wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave you unto your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. Shiloh was in the north. That's gone. That's where the tabernacle was. And it, uh, the northern tribes have been gone into captivity. And he says, this house, he says, you're putting your trust in the temple rather than me. Verse 15, and I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all of your brethren even the whole seed of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was the primary tribe in the northern tribe. They became the, the ruling tribe up there. Therefore, pray not for this people. Jeremiah, don't pray for them. Neither lift up, cry, nor prayer for them. Neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear. They, Jeremiah eleven fourteen. Um, talking about the broken covenant and talks about their idolatry and you have to go back and just write this down and go back and look at it therefore pray not for thou for thy this people neither lift up a cry or prayer for them for I will not hear them in this time that they cry unto me for their trouble so they're going into captivity there's nothing you can do about it it's pronounced that doesn't mean every Jew was lost but it meant the nation was going into captivity. 
when they rejected Israel as a whole, I think that's what our brothers talked about Israel as a whole, as a nation, and the rejection of Israel, of, of the Messiah, then the whole nation had to suffer for it. And there wasn't any chance. They were going to go. <laughs> there wasn't anything. God wasn't going to put that off. 14.12, we have the same thing. He's telling him not to pray for these people. In, in Jeremiah 14.12, um, when they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they offer burnt offerings and an oblation, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by pestilence. They were going, and that was Jeremiah's message. He was telling uh, the, the, the Jews there, the, the king uh, of uh, Judah, surrender, don't, don't rebel against the king of Babylon, but he did. He kept doing it. And pretty soon the king of Babylon said, that's it. You're out of here. And actually the Lord used it. The Lord said, this is what's going to happen. If you don't obey me and submit to them, but they say, you know what the false prophets were sent coming down saying? We got the temple. We got the covenant. God can't put us out of the land. He's promised it to us. And part of his warning. Remember what happened to Samaria? Remember what happened to the northern tribes? He kept bringing that up. Hosea brings that up. Matter of fact, Hosea tells him, he says, you know what? You're worse than your older sister. I believe that's what he's talking about. And that would bring in the tribulation period. No way. They're going to be saved out of it at the end. But they have to go through it. Anyway, that's something to think about. If you want some other passages to write down to look at concerning that, Ezekiel 8, 18, Micah 3.4, and Isaiah 1.15. Those aren't the only ones. That's not exhaustive, but those are some other passages to look at. But anyway, Exodus chapter 12. Boy, I'm going to have to hurry. Exodus chapter 12. God, when he brought them out of Egypt, he told them to do something. Pentecost and Passover are tied together, aren't they? There's uh, two of the three feasts that, um, there's three feasts that all, all Israel was supposed to uh, go to every year, even though it was out of town. That's why so many came down there for, Pente for the Passover and Pentecost. And, and that was um, 50 days later was Pentecost. A lot of Jews came and would stay during that time. In Exodus 12, verses 24, and he's talking about the Passover and how it was going to be a holy convocation and they would always follow, follow it. Now, the, the Passover and the Feast of Weeks, uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, excuse me, Feast of Unleavened Bread were together. And this clears up some things in the gospel records of what was going on because you had the Passover followed immediately by the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was seven days. With the Passover, we had an eight-day time. And sometimes they would call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread, speaking of the whole thing. Sometimes they would call the whole thing the Passover. Sometimes they would refer to the one day as the Passover. And you have to sort that out. And that answers some of the questions about uh, when Christ was crucified and, and uh, what the Passover or what the Sabbath was doing in there because the first and last day regard of the, of the uh, week of unleavened bread was a high day regardless of what day of the week it fell on. It was a Sabbath. So you could have some, some high days that were thrown in there. So anyway, 
I'm getting sidetracked here. They were given the Passover, and he's telling them, verse 24, You shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass, when ye come to the land which the Lord give you, and according to his promise, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, Now Passover is a witness and a testimony, that you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshiped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So did they. So after they went into the land, they were supposed to observe this yearly and make sure their children would ask, why do we do this? You know, it's largely been forgotten. We have the 4th of July. That's not the real name of it. That's just the day it happens on. But we've come to know it's the 4th of July. What is the name of that holiday? Independence Day. Independence Day. What are we supposed to explain to the new generation? Get, yeah, we're supposed to explain that the sign of the Declaration of Independence and the establishment of a new nation and the freedoms that we have in the Constitution and to keep that idea alive in the nation as the nation goes forward. What the Passover was. Have we largely forgotten what Independence Day was about in our nation? I think so. I think a lot of people have. A lot of people never even give it a thought. It's 4th of July. It's another day off. And we'll have a, uh, uh, let's get a keg and have a party. <laughs> you know? Well, the Passover was the same kind of thing. They would look back and, Mo Mo and Moses uh, let us out. The God, through Moses, let us out of Egypt. And let us out of bondage and brought us into this land. You know, I wondered for a long time why they didn't uh, celebrate the Passover. After the tabernacle was built, they did, but then they didn't celebrate it again for 38 years until they were in the land. And I wonder, what, those, that rebellious bunch, they didn't celebrate the Passover all those years because God had condemned them to die out there. No, it's just when you went in the land, they were supposed to. And when they went in, they celebrated the Passover. And they'll look back at that. Go to Jeremiah chapter 16. And so the question, and the Jews still do this today, I understand, when they uh, um, celebrate the Passover, that there's four questions the youngest child will ask, and I think they're written, and I don't remember what they are right off, but they ask these questions, he explains why they do the Passover. One of them is, why, why do this night do we eat lounging, you know, or, or do we eat, uh, leaven, we do eat unleavened bread and other nights we eat leavened bread and um, those kind of things and they, ex they explain the symbolism of the, uh, of the uh, meeting. They said there's a spot here that <laughs> okay, that's what it is. Um, that there's um, the symbolism of that uh, celebration that points back to what uh, God did for Israel the bitter herbs and the shank bone and, and all these things. And they have the glasses of wine there. They have four glasses and the, the, the youngest child, actually the youngest son, I think, is supposed to ask these four questions and the father answers those questions. We have to, understand, to understand this passage of scripture, you have to understand the celebration of the Passover and what's going on in those questions. Verse 14, oh, ah. Well, this ties to it, so let's go to verse 10. I'd like to go clear back. 
And it shall come to pass, verse 10 of chapter 16 of Jeremiah. And it shall come to pass when thou shalt show this people all these words, and they shall say unto thee, he's talking about, you're telling them God's going to judge them. And they shall say unto you, Wherefore hath the Lord pronounced all the great evil against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord? Then shalt thou say unto them, Because your fathers have forsaken me, saith the Lord, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. So, wow, because of the fathers? But he goes on in verse 12, And ye have done worse than your fathers. You remember what Stephen told the Pharisees? You think the Pharisees were aware of this passage of Scripture? I think they were. I think they were very aware of this passage of Scripture. And ye have done worse than your fathers. Behold, ye walk every one after the imagination of your evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore will I cast you out of this land into a land that ye know not, neither ye nor your fathers, and there ye shall serve other gods day and night, for I will not show you favor. I'm glad I didn't stop there. Verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, the day, days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth. Now, he just got saying, I'm going to cast you out into the nations. But it'll no more be said, The Lord liveth, that brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That's what they were saying at, the, Pente at, Pente at the, the Passover. The Lord liveth, that brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt. He said, I'm not going to say that anymore. They're not going to look back to Moses. They're not going to look back to the deliverance. The Passover is not going to go away, but they're not going to look back to the picture. They're not going to look back to the type anymore. But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he hath driven them, and I will bring them again into their land I gave unto their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishers, and saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill out of the holes of the rocks. For mine eyes are upon all their ways, and they are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from mine eyes. And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double, because they have defiled my land and have filled mine inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable things. They're going to suffer for it but then I'm going to bring them back. And he says, they're not going to look back anymore. They're not going to look back. You know the Jews are looking back, they're still looking back to Moses. They're still looking back to the lamb that was killed and that blood that was put on those doorposts. And they're supposed to be looking back to the cross. The same place we look. It'll no more be said that he brought them out of Egypt. But it'll be said when they come into the kingdom, when the fullness of Israel has come in and the, the tribulation comes to an end, when King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes to this earth and, and defeats the armies of the Antichrist and, and the world and Satan is bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit and his kingdom is set up on this earth and he'll rule and reign from Jerusalem. Israel will celebrate the Passover and they'll look back to the cross and say, look what the God who lives has done for us. And they'll be able to go and see him right there in Jerusalem in the temple. And the palace and the, and, the and the temple will be the same, I believe. And will he sit on the mercy seat? Will he sit on the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, he'll actually be there. They'll no more look back to that. They'll look back to the cross. They've missed it, though, haven't they? They've missed it. They rejected it. 
They failed. They had their opportunity. But they will, God will, fulfill those promises. He will bring them into the kingdom. And there will be resurrected people and there will be uh, uh, people with natural bodies that survive the tribulation that will go into the kingdom. That's interesting to me. I don't know what that's going to be like. I can't understand it. But Ananias and Sapphira, what, something what it's going to be like. You know what's going to happen when you lie and get caught? And there's going to be guys like Peter running around that uh, when they come to question you, what if you lie to them? It says a man who's 100 years old, if he dies in the kingdom, he'll be thought of as a child, died as a child. We can't comprehend all that. It's going to, the, the, the tribulation is probably is the most horrible thing that's ever going to come upon this earth. And then let's go to Ezekiel chapter 20. And um, and I'm just, I'm going to try to bring this to a close. And I hope it's made some sense. And I hope I brought, you see why I spent so much time on some of the other passages and, and looking at the Old Testament and the promises to Israel and, and the, um, what happened to Israel if you try to look at these things, there's going to be a resurrection. They're going to come into the land. We have the first resurrection. Daniel talks about it. We find it in Revelation. We find it in Isaiah. But here we also find in chapter 20 of Ezekiel. Now, bear in mind, some people might look and say, well, this is already fulfilled. Look at the details of these prophecies. If they've been fulfilled in history, I want you to show me the evidence. I want you to show me when Israel, has been, Israel and Judah have both, all 12 tribesmen, back into their land and dwelt safely. I want you to show me a time when they've had rule over the Gentile nations. That's what they're promising. It just hasn't happened. Not going to until Jesus Christ does it. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 33. Have you thought about Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount is very important, where those that came and they say, Lord, but we cast out demons in your name and we healed people in your name and we did this in your name, we did that. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I never knew you. Chapter 20, verse 33. I wish we had time to set the context, but I'm just going to look. Start, start at verse 33. As I live, saith the Lord, God surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. That's the tribulation. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there I will plead with you face to face. Now, Another, another uh, thing you want to remember in reading in the Old Testament, when he talks of the people, you just have to look at the context, but it's a, it's a clue that he's talking about Israel. When he says the peoples, it's always the Gentiles. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. In other words, you know, similar to Egypt, and I, I, I pleaded with them. So I will plead with you, saith the Lord, so I'm going to gather them into the wilderness, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And Ezekiel talks about the new covenant. He doesn't call it the new covenant, but he talks about a covenant, and he's going to, a covenant he's going to make with them and give them a new heart. Verse 38, And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. 
I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, for you shall know that I am the Lord. All Israel is going to be gathered together. That doesn't mean every individual Jew will be saved. In Matthew 25, we have the judgment of nations. And I'll turn there quickly. Matthew 25. Anybody know the basis of how these nations are judged entering into the kingdom? Pardon? Twelfth throne. Now, this is the nations, not Israel. The nations. And uh, chapter 25, verse... uh, yeah, 30, 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him and all the holy messengers, the word angels just means messengers. You have to look at the context of who's being talked about. There's some, <laughs> sometimes we, we have a misunderstanding. Anyway, with him and he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. Christ hasn't done that yet. He's going to. And before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another. The shepherd divideth his sheep, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And then the goats shall say to them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. From the foundation of the world been prepared for Gentiles. The kingdom gospel has been preached from the very beginning. But Israel became to the forefront after after. Abraham, and then especially with David, with the king. Something to think about, too. When Christ was born, if the kingdom had continued, who would have been the king of Israel at the time that Christ was born? Anybody know? The Bible tells us. Joseph. Traced the lineage back. He traces right back. He had the legal right. Joseph, Christ's adopted father. Mary's husband was in the line, and it had gone down through the line, family line. That's why his lineage is traced back. If the kingdom had continued, he would have been in the line to be king and gave Christ the legal right to the throne. But because the line of Solomon was cut off because of unbelief, it went through the line of Nathan, Mary's line, which gives him the physical rights of heirship to the throne, and yet born of a virgin. It's amazing, the detail that's in the scripture. And he'll say that the foundation of the world, for verse 35, for I was hungered and you gave me meat, and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came into me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee and thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in or naked and clothed thee? Or sick or in prison and came into thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of thee, one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. What was it the Lord Jesus Christ asked Paul on the road to Damascus? Why persecutest my people? That's not what he said. What did he say? Why persecutest thou me? Right there. 
Paul was persecuting the believers. And he says, my brethren. And so the Gentiles, now we have the Gentiles, though. The Gentiles that were persecuting the Jews during the tribulation are going to be in trouble. They're the next group. He says, when you didn't help them, are they going to need help during the tribulation? You bet. They're going to, Antichrist is going to make an effort to wipe out the Jewish, not just the Jewish religion, the, Jew, the Jews, the, the seed of Abraham. And those Gentiles that will risk their lives by helping a Jew to survive that tribulation period, they're going to have to be believers and they're going to be rewarded for that. And those that refuse to regard, here's works involved, refuse to regardless of what their beliefs about Jesus Christ are, are going to be cast into the lake of fire. You know, the beast and the false prophet will be cast in the lake of fire at the end of the tribulation period. And the kingdom, the, the unbelieving uh, the people who survived the tribulation, the unbelievers who tried to survive the tribulation would cast their with them at this time. It's going to be based on how they treat the Jews. Whether There's going to be a lot of Gentiles going to the kingdom. And in the kingdom, you know, a lot of times people get the idea the kingdom is going to be communal living because in Pentecost they sold all and they had everything in common. But there was a purpose for that. That's to get them through the tribulation period. Because in the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to deem that they can't buy or sell unless they take the mark, and that people are going to have to band together to survive the tribulation period. And that's what they were expecting. That's why Peter said, this is that spoken by, by the prophet Joel. He was expecting the tribulation to start. And that's why they were doing that. The Bible tells us very clearly that in the kingdom, every man will sit under his own vine. Uh, so you're not going to have communal living. I, I think that's uh, Micah 4.4 4 is one place. There's other places too. That every man will sit under his own vine. I mean, that's going to be a time of prosperity and wealth. And, and they're not going to have communal living. They'll be responsible for their own action in the, in the, in the kingdom. But what I'm trying to, to bring out here is God is not finished with Israel. He's going to fulfill all those promises. You know what? If God does not, would not, if we thought, if I thought God could not fulfill His promise to Israel, and that's why He brought in the dispensation of grace, well, I give up on them. I'll just save these Gentiles now. How good a hope would we have? We wouldn't have any hope because our, if He couldn't fulfill His promises to them, can we trust Him to fulfill His promises to us? He's promised them earthly blessings. They're going to, and they've got spiritual blessings too because they're going to be regenerated. They're going to be born again. They're going to live on this earth. And now most of the people, let's put it this way, everybody who enters into the kingdom, the people who survived the tribulation, of course the resurrected saints that enter in, they're going to be saved, of course. But all those that survived the tribulation to enter into the kingdom will be saved people. But not all their children will place their faith in the living Savior. One of the most astounding passages of Scripture to me is at the end, is in Matthew, uh, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 21, when it says the Satan is released. He'll be bound for a thousand years, during that thousand year kingdom in the bottomless pit. It says when he's released, once more the nations will follow him in rebellion against God and they will try actually to attack Jerusalem, the camp of the saints, to try once again to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's one of the most remarkable things to me. It's hard to understand because the scripture is very clear. During that time, <coughs> there's so much scripture. I wish I could look at it. We don't have time. Zechariah says that 10 men will grab the sleeve of a Jewish man and say, take us to Jerusalem. Take us to your Lord. That's in Zechariah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 49, it tells us that the Gentiles will be a king, a Gentile king and queen will act as nursemaids or babysitters for the Jew. Over and over we find those passages of scripture like there's a difference. Israel is going to be the premier nation. But at the end of the tribulation or the kingdom, the thousand year reign, they'll raise up one more time to rebel against God. That, that is astounding to me. That will be followed by the great white throne. The great white throne judgment in which the unsaved of all ages be resurrected to face the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says every mouth will be stopped. Nobody will stand up and say, you know what? I've got a case. You ever heard people say, you know, I want to reason with God. We'll sit down and uh, wish I, wish I did more good than bad. Their sin is going to be revealed and every mouth will be stopped. That's a sad day. But it's coming. There's a lot of people that like to say they like to believe in universal reconciliation or annihilation, that people will just be annihilated or everybody will be saved eventually. Not true. Only those who put their faith in the living Savior will be saved. And we have an opportunity today. In Paul, uh, let's look at Second Peter, and I'll close with this. Second Peter chapter 3. And you remember what I said about, in closing, meaningless preacher's term. The fullness of Israel will come in. The times of the Gentiles, Israel is uh, domineered by the Gentiles. There's domination over them by the Gentiles, even today. And all that will come to an end when Christ comes back. But that great tribulation period, we're looking for the rapture of the church. Israel's hope is to be delivered during that time, and that will be fulfilled. But we look for Christ, not the Antichrist. Verse 15, an account, and he's, you look back at what Peter was saying in this book, talking about God, God's not slack, God's coming. They said, for, they've always said, it's just always been this way since creation. Things have changed. Christ isn't coming back. I had, I've had people tell, I've heard that before. You know, I heard that 20 years, I heard that 30 years ago, and I don't see him. I had one man tell me, when he comes down and stands out here in my driveway, then I'll believe. <laughs> Be too late then for that man. Verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given to him, hath written it to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. They twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Paul's letters, other scriptures... But he says that the long-suffering of Christ, Peter's saying, you know, Christ has put off his coming. 
He's long-suffering. It's for salvation. Titus, we talk about grace a lot, but in Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting something we don't deserve. And I see the cross as a demonstration of God's love with the arms of love and mercy stretched out, reading, waiting to reach around and just embrace whoever would just come to him by faith. What a wonderful and thrilling Savior we have. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And I believe that's what the dispensation of grace has been brought in for. Not just to give us, I mean, God has a purpose for us and our heavenly hope. He does. And our, his purpose for us to be conformed to the image of his son. We know that. But I think he expects us to be making this, this known to a world that needs to hear the message of salvation. Because Christ demonstrated his love for us while he has sinners. Christ died for us. Christ came into the world. We want to remember that. Christ came into the world to save I'll say it again. He didn't come to coddle the saints. He came to work on us. You know, and once we're saved, he starts working in our life to make us what he wants us to be. And that's not always easy when he works on us through the trials and tribulations. Father, we thank you for the love and grace you have shown us. We thank you for the prophetic program that's there and the richness of of your uh, program with Israel and the promise that you will fulfill it. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, this dispensation of grace that we find ourselves in, that we, that we live in, in this portion of history, in this time. We thank you for the wonder of that grace. We thank you that, uh, for the salvation that, we've, that we enjoy and the position in Christ that, that we have in him. And we thank you for the privilege of serving you, of studying and growing in the word and that that should cause us as we grow, that should give us boldness to share this wonderful message with a lost world. And that the world should be able to look at us and see that we are different, even if they think we're strange, even if they malign us, even if they ridicule us. We know in their heart they see a difference. And we know it brings conviction on their hearts causes them to know that there is hope that you might break their hearts that they might come to the Lord Jesus Christ that their own will be broken that they'd simply trust in him rather than themselves and in the material things and their false gods we don't know how all those things work together to reach people Lord but we do know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing cometh by the word of God give us boldness to speak it in Jesus name Amen.